0: Start over. We'll, we'll nail this one. Yeah. Third time's a charm. (laughs) Welcome to Behavioral
1: Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Behavioral Grooves explores the why we do what we do with great researchers and practitioners in the field of behavioral science.
0: And before we get started with our first guest, I have a question for you, Kurt you're not doing this again. We (laughs) talked about this last week. You always get to ask the questions.
1: Just just hear me out on this one. Okay. Okay.
0: All right. I always do. (laughs) So
1: my question for you is this, given what you know about our guest today, what question would you have
0: for me? Okay. I think this is a trick question because (laughs) I, all right. So are you trying to ask me a question that makes me feel better about asking you a question when I know that you are just asking me a question that will make me feel better about getting to ask you a question? Uh, I'm not really sure if I followed. Oh, (laughs) you you understand. You're basically just asking me a question, so I get to ask a question, but I'm not really answering a question because it's your question about that. Okay, 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 fine. You you, do you have a question? I do actually. I do have (laughs) a question. Well, ask away. So our guest has done uh, a lot, a lot of research on charitable donations. And I know that you, well, I, I believe, I think that you are yes. a regular donor to several nonprofit organizations. And I want to know how you decide which charity to give to. Is it the big picture mission of the organization or is it because you've seen individual examples of the good that that organization does? Well, I tend to think that
1: I engage more with the mission of the organization than with individual stories.
0: And that's the rational response. And it's probably absolutely 100% wrong. I mean, particularly for you, right? No, no, no. It's, it's sensible, right? It's very sensible to think that the reason you give is because of the overall benefit that the nonprofit provides. But research tells a very different story. Mm. And if you're like most people, and In many, many ways you are. There's (laughs) others you're not quite, but in many ways you are. You're probably giving because you have heard an individual story that you identify with, um, and and that's called the identifiable victim. Ah, okay. Well, I probably probably am very much
1: like the way most people... React in that way, okay? But our guest today is Deborah Small, and she's a professor of marketing at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. And Deborah was recommended to us by our guest and her colleague Katie Milkman. And we're, yeah, yeah, we're so glad that we met Deborah. We had a really interesting and fun conversation
0: about charitable giving. Yeah. So Deborah shared some highlights from her research on why people give to charities, the effects of availability bias on our behaviors, the way that social norms dominate the way we feel when we hear of boasting and bragging from people who make donations and and she asks a really good question. Why do so many people make donations to charities that are terribly inefficient with their funds. Yeah, and you're gonna have to
1: listen to the episode to hear her describe the answers to that and all of the questions. All right, but before we get started with our conversation with Deborah, yes, there are just two things. The first is about our new podcast channel called Weekly Grooves. You can find it on Apple's podcast service and it will soon be available on Spotify, Google Play and all the other places that you like to
0: listen to your podcasts. Weekly Grooves is a very short review of some of the topical headlines and we do it through a behavioral science lens. So 15 minutes tops, uh, check it out. And the other thing we want to share is that this week is the Behavioral Grooves is now in the top 20 global science podcast as rated by the ultimate podcast authority, Chartable. Oh, that is so, so cool. <laughs> you, you listeners
1: are listening to a podcast that now ranks in the top 20 science podcasts in the whole world. <laughs> that requires a big thank you to you our listeners for sharing behavioral grooves with your friends and colleagues and students and everyone. And thank you to our
0: guests for being such wonderful partners in our story. Yes, we we appreciate that. So you've hung in there long enough. I think they have. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Right now, we want you to sit back in a comfortable chair, take a sip of your favorite pro-social donation cocktail and enjoy our conversation with Deborah Small.
1: Deborah Small, welcome to the Behavioral Grooves podcast.
2: Thanks for having me. We are so excited to
1: have you here. <laughs> this, is, this is great. Be fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're part of like the ex- extended CMU team, so this That's is
2: right. This, That's this, right. This I, cool. I started my career there, so I feel very attached to the place.
0: All right. Cool. Okay, so let's get started with the speed round, Kurt. All right. So, coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. All right. Bicycle or unicycle? Bicycle. <laughs> you gave a little little uh, crunch on the unicycle look there. As you,
3: not a big unicycle rider. Like,
0: like
2: I, I actually never tried pro- it. I, I would try it, yeah. but I have no experience. So yeah, ninety nine percent of
0: the people we have asked in the show have never. But you know, some of them are like that'd be interesting. But we did have one guy who was like, "Oh, I ride unicycles," and it's like, "Oh, wow, okay." You are the
3: one person. On
2: the, I keep seeing on the bike trail new versions of bicycles that have you know different uh, configurations of of uh, wheels of different sizes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So you might yeah. have to extend your binary to you
3: know, <laughs> all these other types the of The bicycle
0: universe <laughs> genders of one, two, three wheels. We're, 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 we're not bicycle, you know, binaries. So. All right. So. All right. Um, if you had to live a year without a mobile phone or without your laptop, which would you choose? Uh,
2: my mobile phone for sure.
0: Okay. All right.
2: I would be good for healthy actually.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Hard,
2: hard at the beginning, but healthy.
1: Danny Oppenheimer did that by the way, when he was in uh, London for a year and he said it was like the best thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. he, He said that he and his wife just, just loved it. Okay. Last speed round question. What is the best way to increase donations? A focus on the overarching problem or focus on a single identifiable victim?
2: Focus on a single identifiable victim. That's an easy one.
1: <laughs>
0: Great. Okay. Why? Why is that? Well, why? this goes into why? some of your research. This is your research. So yeah. let Let's hear a little bit about what's the – why does that happen? Why, why is it not, more important? Why yeah. not focus on the big problem?
2: Th- that logically that that would be the right way to go. and you know policymakers absolutely need to should be doing that. Um, but psychologically, that is not how we are wired to feel for to care about other people and to feel for uh, problems in our in our world. We're you know think about it. Um, human beings for thousands of years didn't have any, Connection with people far away. We hadn't. There was no, you know, globalization. None of none of that. We only talked to people that we were looking right at, and uh, we only. So our our em- empathy is kind of wired towards these direct, personal, one-on-one connections. And so t- today we still respond much more so to a single victim. It's even better if we have a picture. If we learn a story. Think about how most news stories begin. They don't start with statistics. They start with a single example described in detail. That is what attracts our attention. That's what compels us to feel something. That's what causes compassion. And so psychologically, it's a much more effective way to get people to donate.
1: You're, what you're saying is that they're going to be more effective if they are focused on an individual. Right. But oftentimes Correct. they're struggling with big organizational needs. They need, they need donations to take care of everything. How do they, how right. do they remedy that?
2: Well, I think that that one way to remedy that is by portraying these more abstract broad causes with uh, a poster child. Right. Uh-huh. So um, just because the problem is large doesn't mean they can't kind of lure people in to to focus on it by beginning with a story, just like those news articles do, right? And so on a on a appeal, on a you know a letter you might receive in the mail, or on a website, you the most effective way to bring people in is to start with a, a picture, a single case.
0: Yeah, we I know for myself, we we give to a. a- charity that does work down in Guatemala. And they they do large scale work and bringing these families and different medicines and now all these different things. But every piece of literature that we get, it's not talking the stats of however many, you know, tens of thousands of people they're working. It is right. the child with their mother and they're getting, a, you know, some medicine and different pieces. Or it's that, you know, person who is looking, you know, it's an individual that is on that, that piece of paper. And it, it does, it pulls at your, it's like, oh, oh, I can see what we're doing. And, and our donations are helping that person, even though they're probably not, That's probably a 10 year old picture that they took and are still using. So, but
1: that's right. Can you tell us uh, how big this effect is? Can you tell us about some of your research that might help demonstrate what the, how big this difference is between talking about the big statistics or the big picture versus the single identifiable victim?
2: Well, it's hard to generalize about how big it is, but I can tell you that it's it, it's it's meaningful enough that we we find that even including a lot of statistical information alongside a picture of a specific identifiable victim is worse than just showing an identifiable victim. And so it, it's it's not just that the identifiable victim helps; it's also that the sometimes the statistical information hurts.
0: Help us understand why do you think? I mean, so obviously, because th- that caught me as a surprise. I would I would yeah. have thought that the individual would be have that emotive, and then you see the larger scale, and you go, oh wow, this is really important. So now I would need to do that. Obviously, there's some counterintuitive things yeah. going on there. So yeah. what are, what's the hypothesis, and what have you seen from that? What have you what have you looked?
2: I don't think it's just one thing. I think there's a couple of important things going on. So the first is that once you see the large scale, that single individual becomes almost like a drop in the bucket, mm-hmm. and so then it, seeing that large scale makes makes the task of helping feel impossible. Right, and the problem is so large that uh, what's what's my small donation going to do? Whereas if you're just focused on the single victim, then it feels like you might actually be able to create a tangible, meaningful meaningful impact. And so that's really important to people when they give. They want to feel like, they want to see that their giving is having some tangible impact. And that gets lost, I think, once you start talking in big numbers. Um, so that's one reason. The other reason is that the, the numbers kind of Activate a different part of our mind. It, it activates the more deliberative, kind of reason-based, calculative part of our mind. That's when we use numbers, right, in math class, um, when we're we're thinking about thinking about things in a in a very kind of reason-based, calculative uh, point of view, and that's fine. Except that that part of our brain isn't, or that part of our mind is isn't so useful for caring, right? The part of our mind that kind of um, causes us to care is the more emotional, intuitive side of our mind. And so our evidence suggests that once you get people to start kind of calculating and deliberating, that dampens the, the feeling of concern for, for, for the cause or for the victim. And so it actually kind of counteracts whatever positive effect the identifiable victim has in terms of uh, getting us to care and getting us to give.
1: So the motivation to give needs to come from the caring side, or that's going to be the more powerful driver, right?
2: I, for most people, yes. That is absolutely correct.
1: And yet we're going to be giving in monetary forms. Almost all donations, the vast majority of donations end up coming in, in the form of some kind of a monetary gift, right?
2: Well, people, a lot of there's volunteering is a is a pretty major activity. It's it's a more difficult to track, I would say, but a lot of and a lot of more casual helping takes um, takes that form of donating our time, donating our effort, rather than than money. Most of our studies are done with money because it's a little bit tr- truthfully it's a little bit easier to collect data on that. We have a nice kind of quantitative measure there. Um, but I, I think the same this for the same the same psychology drives people to actually sometimes prefer volunteering their time than their money as they that seems more meaningful to them than just you know cold hard cash
0: if yeah. you will. So Given this fact and given that uh, charitable organizations know this and various different things, are, do we respond as, as people who are getting these, uh, you know, solicitations? How, how are we, are we giving the most optimal way typically? Or are there things that we're doing that, you know, again, if I'm thinking that I really want to work on on hunger issues, right? That's right. my big thing all right, I see this, this ad with this poor, starving child, and so I'm going to give to that organization, but I don't give to another organization that is feeding hundreds and they just don't do it. Is there Are there things that we should be aware of when we're thinking about this from the way that we give?
2: Yeah, yeah, great question. So uh, oftentimes when you ask people why they give or what's important to them when they give, they say they, they want to make a difference. And if you push them on that and you you kind of push further and say how important is it to you that when you give, you give in the way that kind of has the most effect, right? right. Relatively more, you know, if, if you could give in a way that had an even greater effect, would you do that? And people, people say, yeah, yeah, that's that's very logical. Like, why would I leave money on the table if I could donate somewhere else and have an even larger effect? Um, but but their donation, patterns of donation don't seem to follow that logic. And in fact, there's this this growing movement in, in philosophy started by uh, the, the really... Kind of spearheaded by the philosopher Peter Singer, called the effective altruism movement. Okay, and and Singer, Singer is is a, a very interesting and provocative philosopher who who talks a lot about uh, limits of, of 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 reason and how we should act in a more utilitarian, reason based way, and, and lots of lots of things, including altruism, and so. Singer's argument and the effective altruism movement has really pushed for trying to to, to push people to uh, give in ways for which their their donations have the largest return on investment. So think of it as like invest investing in the stock market or investing in a in a business. Any business decision you're always thinking about if I put this money in, how much what's my ROI? How much am I going to get back? Right. And right. so Singer's argument is that we should do the same thing uh, when we're choosing choosing a charity or deciding how to allocate our, our charity dollars. Um, but what's interesting is that for, for a long time, even if you had that, shared that philosophy and really wanted to follow that that rule, it was really hard because there, it's really hard to get information on that. It's not that charities are typically advertising that. And uh, it's, yeah, it was difficult. Um, but that's changed in recent years as this, this movement, the effect of altruism movement has really kind of grown in prominence around the world there's been a great effort to try to calculate and measure and calculate um, impact okay. and to to make that information more transparent to consumers or, or donors so that they, they they can find it easily and and know how to make kind of quote-unquote smarter donation decisions so there's organizations like give well and the life you can save that are kind of really do crunching the numbers and in in smart ways to try to give uh, donors good advice on how to maximize the impact of their charitable dollars. So, so that's changing. Is, well, and is,
1: it, is it making an impact?
2: I, it's making an impact in a very small community of, of, um, I don't want to call it a cult, but <laughs> devotees, if you will. <laughs> um, so that consists okay. of the, the people that are, are have really bought into this idea. Are, it's a certain type of people. Um, okay. So it tends to be a lot of people who work in finance right. and a lot of economists and philosophers. So people that really buy into kind of u- using logic in a serious way for decision making, um, thinking about investing, uh, people who... so. People who think about investing in their daily lives and that that logic of maximizing the return on their investment tend to be the ones who adopt this philosophy and their their giving patterns. Uh, we've done some research to try to understand that. That's by the way. That's a that's a pretty Small fraction of, of the world. That's it happens to really. be, okay. it, ha- yeah. okay, good. <laughs> it happens to be some who are very with- correlated with being very wealthy, and so that that's a good <laughs> thing. And that you know, a lot of dollars are kind of. You may think about how you know Bill Gates' is philosophy with the Gates Foundation. Yeah, is is kind of along along these lines, um, using reason and evidence to make smarter you know allocation decisions. But most people, uh, unfortunately don't naturally buy into this. And so in our research we do things like we give people a choice set of different uh, organizations for which they can donate to and we give them very easy to understand information on where their w- which choice uh, leads to the greatest social impact. So things like ratings, things that people can like easily comprehend, right? So right. five stars versus four stars, things like that. Yeah. And and what we find is that this information just pushes them a little, but not a lot. And, and, and the reason why it doesn't, um, the key reason I think why people don't choose the most effective charities is they don't think about charity in that way. They think about charity more like individual consumption. And so they want to give to certain causes because they feel more connected to those causes, or they're they they feel more empathic to those causes. And if that conflicts with the cause for which they can have the greatest impact, they're willing to sacrifice some impact to get the cause uh, that they like. Uh, so it's much more it's much more like you know uh, what what kind of food do you want to have for dinner? Do you want to have Italian or sushi? Well, I can tell you that the sushi restaurant is better than the Italian, but if you feel like Italian, you're going to choose. Italian. Uh, Same yeah. with, you know, if I can tell you that that the malaria uh, organization is the one for which your dollar can save the most lives, but you're just not feeling malaria right now. You feel much more strongly <laughs> towards breast cancer, then you're gonna give to the breast cancer uh cause in, in most in most cases.
0: Well, you had talked earlier about even when looking at the the large numbers versus that in single case and the emotion side and, and where that operates in the brain, I would, I would assume that doing that financial ROI kind of take also brings yourself into more of a financial part of, of thinking that takes you away from that emotional side. So lessons that, that piece of that. So I, I could see where that plays out. And to your point, I'm not feeling malaria today. I, I, I'm feeling, you know, breast cancer or whatever, that, that emotional. All, all breast cancer today. Colon cancer today for Colon cancer you, today. You know, so, no, but uh, we're joking, and that's probably really and bad. It's, but
2: yeah, no, no. It's, it's actually, I mean, I, I use – those are the right examples to use, I think, because – Breast cancer as a cause is extremely popular. I mean, this is why we have a whole month for breast cancer and we have all these products doing these um, cause marketing promotions with Komen. Part of it is because Susan G. Komen is a remarkable organization that has amazing marketing. Yeah. Um, but the, the other part is that Breast cancer is is really really common, and so most of us have had our lives touched by it in some way shape or form. More so than for other issues, certainly than malaria. And so uh, that even though it's it's uh, the the return on our investment is pretty low for donating to Susan G. Komen, um, a lot of people have that that connection to that cause, and that's really really yeah. want to support it.
0: Yeah. We, we know somebody that has had breast cancer. We don't know that, at least in America, we don't know that many people that have malaria and, 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 and different things. Very I have true. a best man at my wedding is a heart surgeon and he gets up in arms over that all the time because he goes... Breast cancer kill, you know, I forget what, what, where it is. It's, it's still, it's huge. It, it kills a lot of people and, and right. you know, a lot of people get it, but he's talking about heart and and the amount of, of right. deaths that are attributed to heart disease, which is just way more than that. And he just can't, can't fathom yeah. why, yeah. why you're not spending. He's probably more on the, uh, the ROI side of this, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, but he also has some vested interest.
1: Well, I, I, I'm True. glad that you brought this up and I, I'm not here to, uh, pull Susan G. Coleman's organizations years back. That that that's not that's not my point. But they're not a very efficient organization when it comes to the way that they spend money on research compared to how much they spend on marketing. And so (laughs) there is and this is a struggle that I've had about are they helping the cause simply by drawing more attention by do, being very effective at drawing attention to the problem uh, and possibly getting more people to donate than would otherwise donate without that marketing and without that promotion.
2: Certainly, that's that's part of it. Um, look, yeah, they're, they are really good at that. And I, I give them credit as an organization. I'm a marketing professor, so I give them a lot of credit. <laughs>
3: um,
2: but uh, at, the, at the same time, uh, I, I don't think that's the only thing that's going on. I think they... they uh, they are uh, lucky is like a weird word to use here, but relatively lucky compared to, say, you know, the American Heart Association in that it's they're they're working with a cause for which it's 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 kind of rel- relatively easy to get people on board because of yeah. this natural proclivity to want to support this cause. Right. Um, the, the, you know, compared to heart heart disease, it's more it's less deadly, but it's more common. And mm. also, uh it uh, it affects people young oftentimes younger, probably heart disease is probably I, I, I'm I don't know the statistics on this, but I assume it's it affects people older. and so yeah. it does kind of create create has other kind of advantages in terms of natural sympathy.
0: Well, th- doesn't this go into? and i know you've done some work on distorted risk perceptions right so you know the the idea that because i remember actually talking with my wife we had we went through this period a, a number of years ago where it seemed every other person had breast cancer you know that her sister had it her mother-in-law had it friends yeah. had it and that was readily apparent and yet we actually had another friend who died of of some heart disease. None of the people with breath can- cancer died, but yeah. it was surrounding us at that moment. And mm-hmm. so it felt much more real and in our face versus, you know, yes. anything else.
2: Yes, I don't know if you've talked about this on the show before, but one of the the, the most well known heuristics in the decision making literature is is what's called the availability bias. And so mm-hmm. when something personally happens to you, or um, it's all over the news, we think it's more likely um, than uh, than other things that may in fact be more likely just because they're not. Right there in our face, and I think personal experience is 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 certainly a, a a factor that that plays into that availability bias. Right, it seems more likely.
1: So I want to use that to loop back to something you talked about very early in our discussion, and that was about how the news media is really effective at starting a story with a single person. Yeah, but they're very very good, and part of that is uh, then we start to think about issues we start to think about the murder rate in the city because they stop they open the news with uh, yet another person has been murdered or uh or there's something wonderful you know that's happened and and that availability bias influences how we feel about things is this also the, the case with for instance coronavirus which is happening right now is the media using vividness and and the the things that come from availability bias to potentially distort our views
2: not intentionally, but I think that is a, a result of the way that the news is coming in regarding this this um, kind of ongoing crisis, right? Right. So uh, the fact that the, the, the story is kind of naturally unfolding slowly, right? Each day we learn more about new, new cases come up and in new locations. The news doesn't write about nothing happening. Right. right. and so, yeah. um, so we don't know about all those people who travel through airports and we're just fine, right? yeah, and so we do we do get this kind of um biased uh, feedback about about what's happening. I mean, risk is so tricky to think about um, compared to there's so many things, right? Like I, I push a button on my oven and the temperature heats up. There's like a direct consequence of my action. There's mm-hmm. no uncertainty. Uh, At all. And so those those kinds of situations are really easy for us to learn about as human beings. But these probabilistic events, especially these really low probability events, right, like getting sick, um, getting in a terrorist attack, uh, things like that. It's really hard for us to wrap our, our minds around them because we don't get feedback Personally, uh, in a in a in a kind of even in a, in a, certainly in a direct way, and definitely not in an even-handed way. And I think the media certainly contributes to that, giving us the sense that this thing is much more common than it and than it actually is. Um, that's not to say that we shouldn't change our behavior or be be thinking about this because the consequences are 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 rather rather high. Um, it's just that we're uh, we're we're not necessarily we're not necessarily even-handed in the way we we estimate our say our own likelihood of of catching coronavirus or anything else right
0: so on that is, is is there part of that too that comes down to the control that we feel so for instance i know that we the the, the likelihood of us dying in a car crash is much more than dying in an airplane crash and yet yes. people have a much bigger fear over flying partly in from in Correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is because they feel that it is out of their control, that this is that's, just this whim. And so does that work? Is that is that a reality? It's
2: absolutely right. I mean, there was that's absolutely true. Um there was an interesting study done after nine-eleven. By the way, so much of what's happening in the news media media is kind of bringing me back to the the weeks after 9-11. Yeah. And the oh, concerns interesting. about flying and the concern the concerns about flying the what struck me so much at that time was every do you remember that period when everybody was super concerned about opening their mail because there were these few anthrax scares yeah. Yes. Like nothing happened. it was fine in the end, but there was just this kind of low level panic about every everyday things that you didn't think about before. And I feel like that's similar to what's happening uh, right now. And so anyway, I was saying before, there's this interesting study done by this guy, Gigerenzer, um, who looked at uh, the incre- who looked at, at automobile fa- fatalities in the weeks after 9/11. And what he found is that because so many people were scared to fly, they instead drove their cars more. And as a result of that, there were the the rise in auto automobile fatalities was higher than the total deaths from 9-11 itself. Yeah. And so that's just, you know, kind of evidence that what feels safe to us is not the same as what is safe.
1: Yeah, and kudos to Gerd Gigerenzer for uh, for actually doing that work. That that is a pretty specific, pretty great study. Uh, why is it that it's so difficult for us to deal with the probabilities? I want to go back to risk and and the psychology of risk. We, evolutionary, have had to deal with uncertainty for a long, long time.
2: Yeah. Um, I think it's a few things. As I discussed before, we don't get this clear feedback, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't know exactly. We don't, we don't you know, if, we do, if I act and nothing happens, if I take precautions and cancel all my work trips... And I don't get sick. Is it because I what would what would the counterfactual have been? I don't know what would happen had I had I done the the have I chosen the other path. Uh, If I travel, I don't change my behavior. um, And I don't get sick, then I kind of mislearn that everything was fine um, or, or maybe maybe accurately learn that everything was fine it's it's this fact that we don't get the the we, we're not in that we don't have the ideal conditions for learning um, in spite of the fact that it's it's not it's not a new problem
0: we talked with Annie Duke a couple times actually and so she talks about resulting outcome bias piece where you know again we don't learn we learn from the outcome and not necessarily the process so Yep. but she's talking about luck, and then there's a lot of luck that comes into play. So yeah, I flew a plane once, and I got a cold. All right, and I make the the mm-hmm. convoluted you know connection that yeah. there it is. But that was you know luck of the draw. I sat next to right. somebody that had a cold. You know, ninety five percent of the other times that wouldn't have happened. So we're not good at those types of
2: right. I mean, so many people don't will still still refuse to take to get a flu shot because. They have this belief that the flu makes them sick um, yes. because they got sick sometime after taking the flu shot. And it's just very difficult to make those cause-effect understandings once um, probability is is involved.
0: Before we, we, we got on air, we were talking a little bit, and, and there was one thing that you were talking about, like some of these large-scale kind of media things where all of a sudden we feel this really angst actually help in changing some behaviors. So, you know, one of the things that I know from coronavirus and all the things that are going on is, look, if we washed our hands better and we did it more often, that would be better than wearing masks or doing any of these other factors that are going on out there to help prevent the spread of it. And yet we're not seeing, we're seeing there's a lot of talk about it, but I haven't I I think from what I've seen is that people aren't necessarily doing it significantly more, but do you think, that helps in driving additional hand washing because of this. Is it?
2: Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, we don't have good data on. It's a harder thing to measure, right? It's right. more of a private behavior, so we don't. My anecdotal evidence is that people are taking yeah. much greater care. And certainly, I mean, Purell is impossible to purchase right now, from what I understand. <laughs> well, we people were- are are are. At, that's a that's one behavioral. That's you know, we, you don't observe people's use of it, but you observe people's purchase behavior, and it's. A fairly indirect way of suggesting that people are increasing their hygiene uh, behavior. So,
1: yeah, right now, um, uh, I'm a little uh, more optimistic about that. Well, as of as of this morning, Costco, uh, Target, and Walmart are out of uh, hand sanitizers. They have none. They are they've taken it off their websites. They're not even promoting it because they they can't even manage their back orders. Yeah, which is. Amazing,
3: <laughs> actually. So, amazing to so me. it actually.
0: So, so there is some hope there, right? Well, there is. Some I think there. so. The, the,
2: I think the big, the real question, and we'll have to see what happens, is whether that behavior will stick in the long run, right? Yes. And so, habit formation is so challenging, especially. I hate to say it, as you get older in life, it's much more difficult to change your habits. But, you know, don't say still that. Hope for the, that.
1: Don't say that. The <laughs> next
2: generation, right? So I know my kids are 11 and eight now, and they're getting serious lessons in school about hand washing. And uh, hopefully in future generations, there, there'll be better habits around, around those kinds of things. I mean, the other kind of key behavioral changes that I'm kind of personally interested because I travel a lot for work. Is uh, how this will affect people's travel planning, right? And the, the mm. kind of the quant—I feel like the people I know, like academics, and um, travel, just so much. And there's been a lot of discussion about climate change and the cost, social cost, you know, the environmental costs of travel. And it's difficult to think about the cost benefit. You know, when I go to a conference, there's—I I like to think there's some social benefit of me attending that conference, not just my own benefit of of learning and. Getting to you know promote what I'm working on, but that what I'm speaking about or the conversation I'm having are having some social benefit. And so, how do I think about the the trade off between that benefit and the the environmental cost uh, flying? And you know, it's tricky. But if if uh, imagine that lots of people start cutting back on traveling this year, and then they kind of realize, you know, this is fine. Yeah. Let <laughs> less conferences is actually good for other reasons too? Will there be some sort of positive spillover effect in, in traveling behavior?
0: Well, and I saw, again, you think about that and and maybe it will jumpstart some of the alternatives to this. I know in Minneapolis, there was a conference that was supposed to go on uh, and it was technical. And then they instead they did this VR hosted yes. thing. And so now you're maybe right. being able to, to have some of the elements of a conference where you feel more like you're interacting with people and in a VR, Mm -hmm. I I don't know anything about VR, so I'm just making assumptions based on that. (laughs) But, you know, again, taking some of those things that we're just so habituated to that, oh, yep, I got to go to a conference, I'm going to go there and different things and thinking about it a little bit differently, which has some consequences, as you said, on the environment, on, uh, you know, a number of other factors that-
2: And it might not all be. Po- I don't mean to say it'll all be. It would all be positive. Right. I mean, I love that we. I have connections to people of all different cultures and different faraway lands, and that's part of life today. That's I think really valuable. And so, if we all stop traveling abroad, I think that has obvious, you know, negative consequences too. It's just how we. The calculus of all of this is 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 tricky. So yeah.
1: Is there any research on the connection or correlation between hysteria and new habit forming? I, I think about humans have been through, well, humans have been through, yeah. humans, like the black plague wiped out millions of people. Did we learn from that? Did, did habits change after that? I, I, I don't know. I'm yeah. Do you know of any?
2: I not off the top of my head. Um, I'm trying to think what would be a good example. Cause yeah. So they, they, the, like the example we discussed before about people flying less after 9-11, people went back to flying. Like yeah. once the fear subsided, people kind of tended back to their old habits. Um,
1: and the industry was uh, up until, say, the beginning of this year, bigger than ever. The more flights, more planes in the air, more people right. flying.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, and I guess another another example, think about like vaccines ad- adoption, and the fact that we have this you know measles outbreak break in southern california and there's but there's there's forces fighting against habit change too right so yeah. you know erroneous beliefs about what vaccines do and don't do i think also can can get in the way um, but it i wish i had a good answer but i i'm trying to i'm struggling to come up with some example of massive habit change after some hysteria. Yeah, it, so it's a it very be, interesting question. I'm sure there is, and I'm just not thinking of it. So if I think uh-huh. of it later, I'll I'll bring it up.
0: Well, <laughs> so, let us know ooh. and we'll put it in the show okay. notes and we'll we'll make sure that everybody has it. So I'm going to totally switch topics. All right. Sure. What? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that I'm never sorry. happens. <laughs> so, so I understand that you have, have won the Iron Prof. Uh oh, award. <laughs> yes! me award. Now. Yes, yes, right? Yes. Is that so? Help us understand what is the idea. Yeah,
2: let me ask you. I'm gonna turn it around and say, what do you think it is?
0: Your- <laughs> you know, if, if if we would be good podcast hosts, uh, we would have researched that, uh, but we didn't. <laughs> so yeah,
2: I'll tell you what, it's not. It's not a it's not a cooking competition. <laughs> oh,
3: I, I,
0: I was hoping that you were uh, gonna be talking But do you
1: have your own own set of chain mail that you wear? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm in
1: Visioning something very medieval with <laughs> yeah, it's swords, kind of, and, basically. You know, yeah. yeah. So
2: it, it's um, it's it's kind of a fun uh, activity that the MBA students at Wharton put on once a year, in which they invite several professors to give. I think it's five minutes. They might have changed the format. I think it was five minutes when I did it to okay. give a five-minute talk on your research okay. to a big crowd of MBA students, and then. Which is hard to do. Five minutes is a short amount of time to actually like say something. (laughs) For a professor, yes. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You're right. (laughs) Maybe in a podcast world it's it's it seems more reasonable. But it was it was kind of hard to put together. At some point, too, they've changed the rules over the years. At one point they had very, very concrete rules about, you know. 30 seconds on sl- the number of slides and the number of time uh, on each yeah. slide. I don't I don't think they had that the year that I was in it, but it was very strict, five minutes. And then they have some sort of, the, uh, the whole audience votes at the end um, and the the winner gets crowned uh, the Iron Professor. And at, at, we're very proud in the, the I'm, I sit in the marketing department at Wharton. Wharton has 11 academic areas. And
3: okay.
2: um, definitely the marketing department has won, I think, more than any other department. And awesome. Now, it's it's <laughs> probably <love> harder it. <laughs> to like deliver like a five minute compelling talk on accounting than on marketing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Actually, would, I think time you know, should be way
0: too long on accounting. Uh, uh, compelling, <laughs> I think, was the important oh, or the, okay. the word there, right? Yeah, Yeah, so
2: we, yeah, so we I, might have better material to work with. So. Do, you, do
0: you remember what the research was that you presented? What yeah. was it?
2: Okay, so I, I, I done the right <laughs> some, I, I'm not on the spot, but no, I can no. tell you a little bit about the story and about why I think I won. Uh, so the, the research uh, is about... The consequences of advertising your charitable donations, so back okay. to charity. And so I, I've been struck. I, I work in a building called Huntsman Hall. Name the donor was John Huntsman. Mm-hmm. And across, I walk through campus every day, and pretty much a big part of, of university philanthropy, and also you know hospitals and museums and all that, is kind of getting these named donations, right? And uh, so people are kind of purchasing. Naming rights, purchasing this ability to advertise their generosity to the public, right? And by getting their name, you know, planted on a on a building, and in fact, it's gone. It's not even just buildings like anymore. It's you walk through campus here, and these, you know, these stones on the walk are individually named. Benches are named. Even sometimes, like crazy things, like elevators are named. Staircases, even bathrooms are named. I, the, I, the, what? Yeah. So,
0: yeah. What? so University of Iowa, where my where I got my MBA. Uh, they built a new business school right after I left, of course. Didn't Kurt but Lewin had,
1: get his MBA there too? Uh,
0: what? Didn't Kurt Lewin yes, get his MBA He there? didn't get his MBA <laughs> there. He taught
2: Psychology,
1: it. yeah. <laughs>
0: but he, but they were doing naming rights for urinals. That was what? the weirdest thing. Yes. <laughs> oh. you know. Yes,
2: I have heard this. I have heard yes. this as well. I can confirm <laughs> that rumor. Um, rumor at least. Yeah, um,
1: and, and I, yeah. You're here to validate it, right? Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah. And so it's, it's, Interesting, and so that's you know those are like you think of like the maybe that's the behavior of the super rich wanting to you know leave their legacy on their campus or hospital or something like that, um, but it's also if you if you just look on social media, people do post about their generous actions. So their donations, their volunteering activities, or you know, you see these kind of virtue signaling, if you will, of like spend time at a soup kitchen or on a trip building homes and all of this. And and it's it's not surprising that people want to get the word out about their generous deeds, right? Because in our society you you get you get value if, if, if you're perceived, uh, you get social value if you're perceived as a, a generous person. People who are perceived as generous are respected, they have influence and power. And so it's not surprising that people want to do that. Um, but it's it's also kind of, Gross, right? Like it's, it's <laughs> kind of, um, it, it can be, right? Like yeah. bragging, you know, it, bragging is kind of seen as distasteful. And um, bragging about generosity seems especially weird, right? Because, you know, think about gen- generosity is, is supposed to be about caring about the other people. And so if you're doing it and you're trying to like boost your own image or get credit in some way, that's kind of perverse, right? That doesn't seem really like Generosity, um, and in fact, many religions have some sort of maxim about uh, generosity being, you know, anonymous. I know there's an expression in, in Judaism that says that true, 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 true generosity is done in the dark, mm. meaning you know you're not supposed to tell other people about about your your generous deeds. It's not it's it, you make it kind of impure if you do it in in that way because um, you're benefiting, right? And so it's supposed to be about other people, not about not about you. So anyway, back to our research. Um, we argued in uh, in a paper, and we found evidence and support that, that that boasting about your generous actions um, has kind of two effects that interestingly work in the opposite direction. Um, so the positive effect is that it's it's marketing; it's providing information, right? So I learn about you if you if I observe you doing something generous, or I, you tell me about your your generous acts. I learn that. Uh, from from observing your behavior, I learn about what what type of person you are. So that's a positive effect that that has a good of positive effect on your reputation. Um, but on the other hand, <laughs> when you advertise your generous deeds, you're signaling that you're that you're doing it for the wrong reason, mm. right? You're signaling that your motive is you have an ulterior motive. You're trying to get credit in some way, and so that has a negative effect. People don't like that. People like altruism that's pure. They don't like altruism that's driven by an ulterior motive. And so where does that net out when you have a positive and a negative effect? Well, it depends on what people think about you before that, ah. right? So if you have no information about a person and then you they tell you that they did something generous, there you're more likely... To to net out positively, right? Because the the effect of information is positive. There's a okay. positive, and, at least there's a positive and a negative effect. So, um, whereas if I already think of you as a generous person, or maybe I observed your behavior and then later you tell me about it, or something like that, um, there's no possible positive effect because I oh. already know that you're generous. There's only a negative effect, and so that's that that's kind of the the crux of the story and and um, back to iron prof i think telling example of this that i think um, struck word mba students is a, we did a study in which we described a person who donated to charity and then you know we experimentally manipulated such that in some conditions that person subsequently advertised their their donation posted about it on facebook okay sometimes they didn't OK, and so they we're interested in kind of what's how do you perceive this person as a function of whether or not they posted about it on Facebook. But we changed something else. We had another experimental manipulation in the study, which was whether this person was described as an investment banker or a social worker.
0: Oh, uh, OK.
2: Wow. So the, the, the interesting finding is that the investment banker is better off bragging about their generosity than not bragging because your initial impression of an investment banker is that they're kind of selfish. And so you get a posi- you learn pause posi- something positive about them when they tell you about their their good deed. Whereas the social worker you already think they're generous. Yeah. So it doesn't help them at all to advertise their good deeds. And so think our Wharton MBA students who many of them are, you know, studying to become investment bankers or something <laughs> like that uh-huh. kind of yep. They they liked the takeaway that they should brag
3: they so should brag they like to that. brag
2: so <laughs> and by the way i should say that studying bragging is a is a it's a killer on um on your social media life because boy, I am so self-conscious about anything I post on social media now. <laughs> I don't want to come across as a, a bragger, braggart at all. It's just and, and also I am re- I respond, I'm really kind of critical of other people who brag a lot on social media. It really rubs me the wrong way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should be an
0: investment banker and then nobody bother you so much. <laughs> well that's fascinating. Maybe. Do you think so what's what's interesting about this is I, I see the just the sharing in general of, of our lives has changed dramatically with social yeah. media and, and the yeah. norms around that have really I would say over the past 10-15 years very different than when I was back in college and different things. So do, do you think any of these findings are, are are will be shifting because we're just more open to sharing everything, whether it be you know, yeah, I went to the soup kitchen and worked and it's just part of my life and it's not necessarily right. bragging, but it's just this reflection of, I, I share what I eat for breakfast. I share what, you know, right. I took my dog for a walk um, yeah. as, as part of that larger thing as opposed to... I, let you
2: I, yeah, I, 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 it'll be interesting to see and sort of, yes, yeah, so or like our norms around what's private and personal versus public are, are shifting. And so... It's it's hard to it's hard to forecast exactly. Yeah. I'll tell you that when I, t- I, I I talk a lot with people who work at charitable organizations, and they're 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 concerned about this 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 kind of effect because they they actually want people to talk more about their charitable donations because it has positive social influence effects, and so they're trying to actually figure out ways to get over any reluctance they, they yeah. like have to share. They want more sharing because it's 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 better for their bottom their bottom line. And so, if you really want to be a good altruist and you want to do as much good as possible, you should be sharing more. And you just have to <laughs> kind of suck up the reputational cost that you might look like, you know, a braggart <laughs> by doing so and recognize that's it's, it's for the greater good.
3: Oh,
0: wow. yeah. So. Wow. That, that so We're actually it's...
2: doing some studies now. We're oh, working with cool. a big organization. We don't have the data yet where we're trying to like Deliver different messages to donors to encourage them to share more um, to kind of get over that that hurdle. Um so we'll we'll see where that where that goes.
1: We are gonna have to check back with you on that because that sounds like it's gonna be really interesting results. Yeah, yeah, super cool. Okay. Now it is come to the time in our conversation where we get to talk about music. Right?
2: <laughs> oh boy.
0: <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. I'm oh. with I'm with Deborah here. Oh boy. Deborah,
1: <laughs> what's what's on your playlist?
2: Oh boy, this is embarrassing. <laughs> so, I I have an 11-year-old and an 8-year-old and they have full control over the music played in our in our house. So my husband and I have thrown up our hands and and given up. Um, we 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 pick our we choose our battles and so Good you know, call. we control like what food they watch and what TV and what limited TV they and games they play. But they they control the music, and so that means that we listen to a lot of Taylor Swift and pop music, and a lot of uh, musicals, which sometimes is great. Like Hamilton is a, a household favorite. Uh, I've been listening to way too much Frozen two um, for my for my taste
0: of late. You, your household so. is very much like my household. It, it, <laughs> it is very much like mine where, yeah, my 10-year-old and 14-year-old rule the the musical genre that gets played in, in yeah. the, the what kitchen. If, what about when you just have a little time to yourself?
1: Okay, maybe that's a crazy idea to start with, but, <laughs> but if you had some time to yourself, what would you be listening to?
2: I, that's a good question. I I don't. You typically listen to music when I'm working, or and and I have sort of an aversion to having headphones in my ears. So, mm. so talk about generational things. So I walk around the. I, I live in in the city in Philadelphia, and I walk around, and you know, it seems like f- at least fifty percent of people have headphones or yeah. AirPods now in their ears, and and I'm not one of them. I find it kind of physically uncomfortable, and also I don't like having my senses cut off. Um, yeah. I do. I do confess that I, in some ways, I think I would. I, I would definitely enjoy it and uh, if there was some intervention on me to that would it you know uh, I think my basically I think my happiness would be higher if I listened to music more um but the costs of dealing with headphones and like everything selecting yeah so I, there needs to be some product development that makes it super easy for me to m- listen to music that I like all the time without having to deal with those, those costs. It probably exists. And I, I just haven't,
0: yeah, I think there's haven't changed a, there's,
2: my behavior enough.
0: There's, there's a neck speaker now that wraps around your neck that is Rests basically, on your still only you can hear it, but, oh, weird. Uh, but it doesn't go in your, oh, it's
2: on the market. Yeah, Ooh, it's on the market okay, out there.
0: We'll, out. We'll, we'll, we'll research it and put it in the show notes in case anybody <laughs> cares. And when you read this, you can look it out. What about when you're at your office? Do you listen to music while you work?
2: Not usually. And if I did, it would be very, very low volume, something very mellow, like a classic, classical music that would keep me calm, but not distract me. Um I have a, I have a in general, I have a hard time with distractions. Um, and so uh, adding another form of media I think would be would be bad for me unless it was really so background that I didn't have to think about it at all.
3: Yeah.
1: why would classical music be not distracting for you?
2: Um, doesn't have words. yeah, so that's less to kind of think about that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm looking one. at Tim with this like, like, <laughs> oh God. My God. why? Why would? Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> it, a, it, it's ba- it's enough, but... it is just this. I'm probably not sophisticated enough. music. Classical music
1: is some of the most emotional oh. music on the planet. It totally it's like, like, like hey, this, is, this is my blood.
0: This is what we need to study. Is is so, why yeah. why some people find them because they they are and and having I, done this show however many times, there are people that get caught up in jazz and classical and talk about it and and I just. I, I like it, but I can't get I, that. Oh, no. I don't I mean, know, if that I, you
2: know, if I knew, if, um, if I had more familiarity, uh, yeah. I probably would. So it, it's, it's probably also, this is, this is a guess, but it's probably also helpful if it's less familiar music, yeah. whatever the genre is, um, that I'm not, that I don't get kind of swept up into thinking or focusing on the music, I think is, is, is key. And, but, Honestly, I've sort of just opted opted out. I just let's just kind of keep well, this distraction in, in, out you- of my.
0: We I, we haven't well actually I think we might have just done this, but I, I we have asked that question of many people of like yeah. do you listen to music when you work? And and it is probably 50-50 somewhere, it's 40-60 somewhere in there. I think it's it's yeah. Well
1: I don't know, I don't know what the data is. Yeah, but but there there are definitely camps. I think about a most our recent conversation we had with Chiara Verrazani, uh, who is Italian born. She speaks French and English. And when she's working, she can't listen to music in Italian, French, or English. So she'll listen to music like for the Middle East where where she doesn't understand the words because she likes to have music going when she's working. But as soon as something French, Italian, or English comes on, she's done. It's totally distracting for her.
2: Yeah. And so, I mean, you mentioned before that, you know, classical music's very emotional. That's true. And so maybe that's, but maybe that's okay. Uh, it's a is if you're trying to focus on more deliberative work or more work with more Mm -hmm. kind of linguistic content uh, other linguistic content probably interferes more than maybe the more kind of raw form of emotion through music that's that's a that's a hypothesis I haven't I haven't tested it (laughs) a good hypothesis (laughs) I do think, think that that yeah my guess is that I would probably be happier if I listen to music more, but not necessarily more productive. Um, I think I would be more distracted.
3: So, uh, <laughs> so this is this is getting distracted. back
1: well this is getting back to Singer as a philosopher versus like Jeremy Bentham as a hedonist or something. <laughs> yeah. Right? You know? Exactly. I think we're
0: on that, on that. Oh. Yeah, exactly.
2: It's, oh. a, it's, a, it's a constant battle in my life, I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Deborah, thank you. This has been fascinating and just very interesting. And so thank you for Thank for you your guys. Time. I had a great time. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavior groups interview, have a free flowing discussion and whatever else comes into our very giving brains. Well, that's so nice. You're a giving kind of guy. And so are you. You're a you're
1: Oh, a, I'm, a, you're a I'm a curmudgeon. <laughs> I, I'm a little. <laughs> oh, right.
0: Are you doing that so that you don't get solicitations? <laughs> yes, I, I I don't give to anybody. <laughs> no, no, it's, a, it's no, we are giving people. Yeah, I, I would uh, like to believe
1: we are. Well, and it's all relative, right? I mean, we're kind of comparing to our social sets. Right?
0: So our self-identities are of, as of giving people, yep. right? And yes. so is some of our giving to maintain in that self-identity, oh, I don't definitely. know. Definitely, you know, did we didn't definitely. really get into
1: that, but that's no, a, but that's got to be a part of it. It does. Well, and uh if we have this image, we're probably acting on it in part because, as Cialdini would say, it's it's really more ego-driven than it is just pure altruism.
0: That's true, right? right? He did. We talked to him about that. So yeah. that's some really interesting aspects when you think about. Again, giving and some of the work that Deborah was doing and and all of that. But there's also this individualistic personality piece of of how do I view myself? Mm -hmm. What is the image that I have, my self-schema, and am I a giving person? And so in order to maintain that self-schema, I need to give, and I need to give to (laughs) these charities that represent...
1: Aunt, my oh, idea yeah uh, that's right represents who i am and it's getting a little crazy when she was talking about uh, what it's one thing to have a building named like she was just uh, Huntsman
0: Hall right okay yes. but then
1: classrooms stairwells bricks in the sidewalk bathrooms
0: you know, my, That's again, crazy. University of Iowa, they, I, I know at the Tippie College, were I believe, when, when I you, believe were you they there were when doing, Kurt Lewin was there, Yeah, the I was not there when Kurt Lewin was there, but I walked the same halls that he did. Yes, so you there did. you go. Okay. I got some of that infused through my feet. Um, no, but I believe, you know, that they, and I'm not hundred percent sure on this, but you know, you can name the urinals. And so That's you could have crazy. a- crazy. You could have a Tim Houlihan urinal- <laughs> And I could go, never mind, we won't go there. <laughs> I
1: think, I, you know what? Now, if, if that really is the case, now I want to have one. No. I, I, isn't
3: that,
0: that would be a fun, because I would just do that just for the, you know, shits and giggles of it, and then be able to talk to people. Literally like, just the shits and giggles. <laughs> That's the toilet, not the urine, I oh, yeah, hope all right. at least anyway. Oh my God, this is going down the drain or the toilet, I should yeah. say, right? Okay, there, you're very, very quickly. Okay, let's talk about one of the central themes that Deborah brought up, and that was
1: availability bias. Yes. Right, because this is a big, big deal right, when it, when it comes to how we behave, right? And and she brought up Ger Gigerenzer's uh, study after 9-11. And I thought that that was terrific to be reminded that the number of Americans who lost their lives on the road by avoiding flying was higher than
0: the total number of passengers that was killed uh, on 9-11. Right, it goes back to, you know, she's done research on distorted risk perception. And so it's that distorted risk perception. Yeah. So the availability bias of that is the idea that, wow, it's it, we just had these planes fly into, you know, buildings, and so it's really dangerous to fly. And we don't take into account more people die in car accidents every year <laughs> every year than they do, you know, in all of the airline, you know, fatalities, even yeah. when 9/11 is taken into account. So that availability bias comes into play, and we don't, we are not good. At probabilities and in discerning risk, so it's that that risk perception that we have. Again, it goes back to um, uh, you know the idea that how many how many people die from sharks shark attacks every year? Yeah, a, a, a relatively small number. Right? How many people die from uh, you know, vending machines falling and crashing on yep. them. Yeah. You know, more people die from vending machines falling crashing on, on them, them yep. than, than shark attacks. Mm-hmm. But we don't think of that. We have a bad risk perception on, on, on
1: those two. And there's probably good reason for that. I, our DNA survives because we were careful. Yeah. Right? We avoided risk. Yeah. Uh, Adam Hansen, you know, we yes. had a good conversation about risk avoidance with him. And uh, there's good biological evolutionary reasons for that. On the other hand, uh, we live in a complex world and it's hard to understand all these things. So I get where somebody gets off a plane, they've got a cold and they're like, I'm never flying again. Cause you know, I was, I, when I fly, I get, I get a cold. It's like, well, the base rates are different, right? The base rates say tens of
0: thousands of people fly every single day and don't get cold. Right. Well, and, and again, this goes back into charity giving, right? Because if we look at, uh, what people die from in the world. You look at heart disease, you look at malaria, yeah. various different things. Starvation. Starvation. Those are big all deals. Of those things, yet they're not from an availability bias, right? They're not the things that come to mind quickly. Right. And we got into this whole thing with uh, breast cancer and Susan G. Komen uh, yeah. and that. But because... Most of us know somebody who has, has been had impacted bre- by breast, breast cancer. Yeah. Uh, and while the fatality level of that has gone down significantly, and so it's no longer the killer that it once was, it's still bad. And I don't want to discount that no, fact, right? It, it is still a horrible disease that nobody wants, and and there's great research that's going on to to even limit it more. But because of that availability bias, we're more likely to give to you know, a cancer foundation like Susan G. Komen versus, say, a malaria prevention uh, element. Yeah. Uh, And just following
1: up on the Susan G. Komen thing, I just have a beef with the the fact that we are so illogical in our giving, right? (laughs) That
3: uh,
1: I was just doing a little bit of research at GiveWell, which is an organization that that researches. Uh, very carefully, the effectiveness or the efficiency of, of charitable organizations. And, and just to give you an example, Susan G. Komen spends about $27 to raise a hundred dollars. Okay. So they're they're, they're they're more than a quarter, more than a quarter, more than 25 cents of every dollar that they take in. They have to spend to get that dollar, the next okay? dollar. Yep. And the next dollar. So compare that to the breast cancer research foundation, they spend about $7 to get a hundred dollars. Okay. So, so under ten percent, yeah significantly less even even rock and rollers we are the world <laughs> okay? okay, so that 's going back a few years, right but they they 've spent a, a ten dollars to raise a hundred dollars again, about ten percent
0: yeah so it's uh, so i 'm a member of of Rotary International, and Rotary has the Rotary Foundation, which is a pretty large foundation that does a lot of charitable giving, and they do a really interesting piece so They actually take my givings in any one year, and they hold it for three years. And the interest from that then funds all of the uh, administration, all of the elements of also... So so 100% of my donation, now it's, it's delayed three years, but if I give $100... In three years, that hundred dollars actually goes to work on the ground, and so it's a really efficient. It's always rated high in the Get Well and, and other type of things. But, but again, why aren't more people looking at the performance of the organizations, charities, yes, right? Exactly, because again, a lot of those charities uh, that you that you mentioned, you know, like Susan G. Komen, but there's others out there that are really doing a poor job of actually taking the money that they're raising and using that in order to solve the issue that they're raising right. it for.
1: Right. I, uh, you and I have been involved in, in a bunch of local organizations. And I think about how careful they are at every single penny that they get in. They just scrape and scrimp just to make sure that they are utilizing every possible dollar for their mission. Mm-hmm. And I think that's noble. And, uh it's, it's, I, it's not that I have an issue with the work that Susan G. Komen does. I think that they're really great there. Breast cancer education is world-class. On the other hand, they're terribly inefficient, and it, it really kind of bugs me that they're still spending so much just to raise the next dollar. That's, that's really kind of the issue.
0: Right. All right. So another piece that I want to talk about on this is just social norms and the social norms around giving. Okay. Right. So... Context, as you like to say.
1: Context matters. Yes, context matters.
0: Uh, And so I think there's a lot of this that comes into play as we're thinking about who we give to, why we're giving. It goes back to what we started at the very beginning about self-identity and some of those aspects. Very much so. But also... The community that you give in and the social norms of that community, are you more likely to give because you surround yourself with people who are altruistic and give versus do you surround yourself with people who are looking to, you know what, ah, this money's mine. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm going to use it for me. And I think there's, uh, and again, we didn't talk about this in, in our conversation with Deborah, but it's something that keeps coming up in my mind is, you know, how much of our behavior is influenced by the social norms of the community that we surround ourselves with.
1: And my desire to signal back into the social groups that I hang out with, so I don't even have to boast or brag if I can just very subtly mention that oh I was at a large fundraiser recently, and I'm signaling to my social group that in fact I'm I'm a good person. I fit in with everybody here because I'm altruistic and I'm generous and all that stuff.
0: Which goes again one of the the key things that I found really fascinating with Deborah's work was the idea that depending upon how that signaling happens and and the initial. Uh, attitude that I have about you, it could backfire, right? Yeah. So the yes. idea, I already think that you're a giving person. And so if you come to me and go, I was just at this fundraiser and I gave, you know, what, or put that on my social media posts, that is a, uh, you know, it could backfire from that perspective versus if I'm that, Cold-hearted banker, as we talked about, <laughs> right? The investment
1: banker. Everyone expects the 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 investment banker to be bragging. Right. That's totally great. But the social worker, don't well, don't the, don't catch a social worker bragging about how great it was at the charitable event last night.
0: Well, they're already thinking that hey, that 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 investment banker isn't going to give right, and so now by bragging, <laughs> they've, they've 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 signaled that they are a better person than we we normally think. And again, the conversation about social media and how social media is playing out in this, in that signaling aspect that you have. And I want to take that back to the social norms in the community. Are we becoming more of a sharing society that the social norm is that we share everything? So is it less seen, is it seen less as bragging if? We post that, hey, I was just at this charitable donation, and or I just gave to United Way or whatever it is, because we're doing that more and more with other parts of our life.
1: That's a really good question. I, I think that that's worth following up on because we are social media is is promoting more of these idealized lives, and if we're going to be signaling the virtuous aspects of our lives in all ways, then that might actually. Have a positive effect on our culture overall.
0: Yeah. And maybe it changes the social norm for all of those, you know, curmudgeons like me who don't give.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Hey, so before we wrap up, I just have a little note to make. And you have a note to make. Well, you know.
0: Is it a a musical note? Yeah. I can't believe I laid that out so. <laughs> that was a softball.
1: I know that it was, was just uh, uh, perfect, and I didn't even see it coming. <laughs> That's the horrible thing. No, so you give me a hard time about listening to artists pre nineteen seventy eight. Yes, I do, and I wanted to point out something that James Taylor, who came to popularity in the early seventies, right. So you could make the claim that he's a pre-1978 artist. Okay. He has had top 10 hits in the last 6 decades. Oh, consistently. Okay. So uh, he's the first one to do that by the way. No For 6 decades. 6 decades. So here's here, here's the issue is that Isn't he kind of relevant? If he's still having top ten hits, he's just old. Well, he is old, but (laughs) Mozart would be old
0: if he was still alive. So, you know, that's a that's a red herring kind of non sequitur kind of thing. I can't pronounce anything. No, to your point, uh, I believe that there are artists that can maintain their relevancy. Throughout okay. their career, okay. uh, and and they don't just fall back on the idea that I had these hits, nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, and I'm going to <laughs> and, and, play at the casino down the road, right? <laughs> that they're continually yes. making new music and having new new art going out there. Now, I think, and 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 I am. Not familiar with James Taylor's new stuff, so I, I apologize about that. But I also believe that to that degree, they have to shift a little bit in, yeah. in how that music sounds right. and how it comes across. Um, and I will go to U2, who is one of my bands from the 80s, right, that has had top chart you know, producing songs in each of the decades, I think, uh, subsequent to that. Yeah. They, so, they've been
1: consistent in having, and, and been big touring bands Big as touring
0: well. bands as well. And they bring, uh, a different component to the, the newer the material. Yeah. Right. The, it, it sounds different than their older material. Right. I remember John Mellencamp, who you might know as John Cougar, right? <laughs> I think that was his 70s moniker. Um, he was always John Mellencamp Cougar. I think he was. Always. <laughs> he was John Cougar, then John Mellencamp Cougar, and then John Mellencamp. Mellencamp. Yeah, okay. But uh, there was a period in, in the 80s and 90s where he made his band, uh, and, and I, I believe this is true, so don't quote, quote me on this, but I be, where he made his band learn one new instrument. Everybody in his band. And so, on the next album, when they came together, they had all learned a new instrument to play, and so they incorporated those sounds into that the the new album, uh, which again I thought was just a really interesting way of trying to freshen things up and not have that same sound. So it's the wow, this this is a new song, but it could have been made in 1975. <laughs> But with people playing instruments that they're really not all that
1: familiar with.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're professionals, Tim. Come on. It makes a new sound. No, I'm
1: I'm not going to give them a hard time. I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I
1: I, I love that. But uh, this, this, this whole idea is being relevant and vital uh, requires change. You know, in order, in order for James Taylor to have hits in six consecutive decades requires a lot of, of work in altering and developing and merging the sound. I mean, not even Frank Sinatra did that. I'm just trying to figure out six decades back. when <laughs> 2020 was re- is, the, is the sixth one. So the 20s is the sixth Oh, he decade. had
0: a top 10 song.
1: Al- already. That's yes, right. He, is, wow. he released a new record and on American standards
0: from the American Songbook, and it is a top 10 hit. Very good. Well, with that, uh, stay tuned for our uh, bonus track coming up next. Hey Groovers, this is Tim with
1: the bonus track and groove idea for the week. Our conversation with Deborah focused on a few key areas that make charitable giving such an interesting subject. The first is that we can't help but be affected by availability bias. It's deeply embedded in our DNA and even was at the heart of the huge increase in car crashes in the United States following 9-11. And in part because people were just afraid to fly. The second thing is that the identifiable victim is a very strong image for fundraising. It causes people to engage at much higher levels than statistics and mission statements do. If you're participating in a fundraising project, you should keep that in mind. The third key element we discussed with Deborah was that there's a big disconnect between our logic and our donations. People are regularly giving to organizations that are not efficient in the use of their donors' precious funds. And lastly, we want to note that as in so many things, context matters. Talking about charitable giving becomes socially acceptable or socially unacceptable depending on your role in life and the nature of your relationship. Now, here's our groove idea for the week and it's about your generosity. Think about the charitable organizations that you give your time to, your treasures to, or your money to. Maybe there's one, maybe there's many. Whatever you give to them is a resource. And our question for you for this week is this, are the organizations that you're giving to using your precious resources wisely? Give it some thought. Use the link to the GiveWell website in the episode notes to check out your favorite charities. GiveWell ranks major charitable organizations from around the world with reviews on their resource efficiency. We encourage you to make good decisions. Okay, with that, we want to thank you for listening. Behavioral Grooves doesn't have any advertisers, and we would be grateful if you could help us get the word out by recommending us to a friend. It would go a long way to expand the community of people interested in the application of behavioral science. And we hope you have a great week and keep on grooving.